Welcome once again to the Expanding Eyes podcast. And this week is an exciting week of transition in the podcast because last week we concluded our discussion of Homer's Odyssey. And this week we make a new beginning by looking at a poem whose theme is exactly that, a new beginning, Virgil's Aeneid. And I do promise you, my listeners, that it's not anticlimactic from here. The Aeneid, as an epic in the epic tradition of the West, is not as popular as it once was, though at one time it was regarded as the greatest of all epics ever. It was the one to match yourself against if you had ambitions as an epic poet, more so than Homer. It has fallen from that position, partly because of its theme of empire, which is not, to put it mildly, a popular theme in this day and age. But the Aeneid has enormous interest for reasons that are both historical and cultural and ongoing and artistic. So there is much to look forward to. It is a new poem and a new beginning about new beginnings, and yet we also return. We return after the conclusion of the Odyssey, which rounds out the Trojan War saga in terms of Homer. But there is much more. In Greek literature itself, the cycle of the Trojan War was also continued in Greek drama on the stage a couple of centuries after Homer. And there is a, or was rather, a lost epic cycle, as the scholars refer to it. Astonishingly enough, a whole group of other epics, contemporary with the Homeric epics, which have now been almost entirely lost. We have only a few fragments of them that have been recovered and references and sometimes even plot summaries in the works of other literature that has survived. If you're interested in that, you can buy a translation of what paltry fragments remain of the epic cycle and an interesting discussion of it in translation in the form of a paperback that you could probably read in a couple of hours. We have lost that much, sadly enough. But the story was continued in Greek literature itself. However, Greece declined over several centuries and Rome gradually rose and eclipsed it. And the greatest figure in Roman literature is Publius Virgilius Maro, whom we call Virgil, who lived from 70 to 19 before the Common Era, BCE. In other words, a little bit before the time of Christ. And this week, before we launch into looking at 
the Aeneid itself, I want to give some background. First of all, why is this Roman poet going back and talking about the Trojan War again? Because the plot of the Aeneid, which is titled after its hero Aeneas, goes back to the Trojan War once again, but on the Trojan side rather than the Greek side. The reason was a legend on which the Aeneid is based that Rome was established by a saving remnant of people led by Aeneas from the Trojan side. As I said last week, I don't know what it says about the Roman people, that they had a legend that they were descended from the losers of the greatest war in history. But nevertheless, that was the legend, not historical whatsoever. And Virgil actually knew this. Virgil was a highly educated member of the Roman elite, and they knew that such history was a sort of patriotic legend and not true history. But for reasons that will gradually emerge as we talk about the Aeneid, Virgil went with it anyway. And the Aeneid is anchored in a single passage in Homer's Iliad in Book 20, in which Aeneas, the figure of Aeneas, does appear, a member of the rather extended Roman uh, royal family of Troy. The scene is that Achilles, the hero of the Iliad, after having spent three quarters of the epic that is about him sulking in his tent in anger and pouting, basically, is finally back out on the battlefield, raging to avenge the death of his beloved Patroclus. And no one can stand up against him on the battlefield. No one can anyway, because he is the greatest warrior in the history of Greece, the greatest, perhaps, warrior of all time. No one can stand against him. He's mowing them down. And least of all can they stand against him when he is in this battle berserker rage of grief and desire for revenge. And he comes up against Aeneas. And Aeneas, great as he is, is clearly going to lose. And the gods, led by the figure of Poseidon, the gods decide to rescue Aeneas, and they do rescue him, in a brief passage that I'll read to you because this is what the plot of the Aeneid was ultimately based on. In Book 20, Poseidon urges the other gods, come, let us rescue him from death ourselves. If he is destined to survive, yes, so the generation of Dardanus will not perish, obliterated without an heir, without a trace. And skipping a few lines, and Aeneas will rule the men of Troy in power, his sons' sons, 
and the sons born in future years. And they do rescue him, and he will rule the men of Troy, but it will not be in Troy because there will be no Troy left after the fall of Troy. Homer does not dramatize or depict the fall of Troy, except briefly in a few quick flashes retrospectively in the Odyssey. Nevertheless, Troy will be no more, it will fall, and Aeneas will gather a remnant band in a few ships and go off searching for a new Troy that had been promised to them by Zeus, the king of the gods. And that is the legend that they sail, they finally find the place where they were predestined to land and eventually establish a beachhead which will turn into a city, which will become Rome, which will later, in Virgil's own time, become the beginnings of the Roman Empire. Not historical at all, but nevertheless, extending the saga, eventually, as I hope over a period of time in these podcasts to unfold, there was a whole Marvel Universe kind of continuity that unfolded from Greek and Roman literature, extending the storyline into literature in the Renaissance, including people like Spencer and Milton, all the way into British literature, an enormous storyline, a total picture that is absolutely fascinating. And we are taking up one strand of it here. Let me first tell you a little bit about the poet Virgil, beginning with why you might see two different spellings of his name. The Roman form of the name is with an E, V-E-R-G-I-L, which is preferred by classicists. Translators into modern English, however, including the one that I used to teach from and am most fond of, which is by Robert Fitzgerald, who was also our translator of the Odyssey, a versatile fellow who could translate from both Greek and Latin. Translators in general prefer the more popular Virgil with an I, V-I-R-G-I-L, which is in fact a medieval distortion. It is one of the strange curiosities of the history of literature. It emerged out of a kind of twofold pun because spelling it Virgil with an I was a pun or echo of the word Virgo, meaning maiden. And the reason for that is that it was known already in that time that Virgil was gay. And that's an astonishing thing that it was even known. Uh, astonishing to me that it did not affect his reputation. Nevertheless, that was one of the puns. The other 
word that Virgil spelled with an I was punning upon in the Middle Ages is even stranger and even more fascinating. The word Virga, which was a type of magic wand. And this is connected with the fact, amazingly, that Virgil was regarded as a legendary magician in the Middle Ages. This poet, somehow or other, became known as, in his own time, long before the Middle Ages themselves, they thought he was a magician. And let me recommend to you, just quickly in passing, that in turn, all the stories are connected in the world of literature eventually. The imagination as a total order of words. That was the basis of a series of three novels by the great fantasy writer Avram Davidson. Taking this medieval legend of Virgil as a magician and developing a trilogy of books of which the best known is called The Phoenix and the Mirror. And uh, highly literate literary fantasy writing by one of the great fantasy writers of the 20th century. At any rate, the actual Virgil lived from, as I said, 1770 to 19 before the Common Era and was born in the city of Mantua in northern Italy. Sometimes, because Virgil was so famous, we'll talk about his amazingly stellar reputation at a later point, but because he was so revered, especially in the Renaissance, you can find references to him, as you do in Milton, for example, simply as the Mantuan, and you simply were expected to know, oh, that's Virgil. It also actually, come to think of it, there's a moment in the Divine Comedy when that also happens. He grew up in farming country, northern Italy. Actually, I happen to come from the area of northern Italy, so I have a little sentimental connection with that. And he wrote only three works. Virgil was known as an artistic perfectionist. And at this point, we have made the transition from the oral to the literate phase of Western culture, at least in this area. Virgil was a writing poet, and the Aeneid was a written epic, unlike the oral epics of Homer. One thing that means implication that you might not necessarily think of. That means revision is possible. You can write and you can rewrite and polish and revise your writing as you cannot oral poetry, which is performance poetry. And therefore, that's what Virgil did. He wrote and polished. There is a story that comes down that he only wrote at the rate of about six lines of verse a day because he polished them so perfectionistically. 
Consequently, he only wrote three works, although all three of them are landmarks. His first work, written while he was young, is called the Eclogues, a word that simply means selections, and it is one of the great works in a mode known as the pastoral in literature. And I wish we had time to digress more because this is an enormously influential mode or set of conventions in literature. And Virgil's eclogues are probably, they, were, they did not invent the form. A poet named Theocritus, a Greek poet, invented the form before Virgil, but Virgil's eclogues are the most famous. And pastoral poetry presents an ideal of rural, simple, innocent life contrasted with the sophistication and yet the corruption of the life of the city and the court. And this became an enormously influential set of conventions despite their artificiality. Basically, if you read Virgil's Eclogues, they are dialogues between a group of shepherds in an idealized countryside, which doesn't really sound like a highly exciting read. But the theme catches people. The theme of a lost innocence of a rural existence. Pastoral evokes in a Christian culture the lost paradise of Eden. And people long for that, and they long for it all the more in a sophisticated civilization like Rome or like that of Elizabethan England. And so the eclogues were extremely influential. One of them was influential in a different way. And that is the fourth eclogue, which became known in the Middle Ages and Renaissance as the Messianic Eclogue. In it, the poet celebrates the birth, forthcoming, of a divine child born of a virgin who will return the world to the Golden Age. It is not possible, of course, that this could be a reference to anything Christian because Virgil died 19 years before the birth of Christ. What does it refer to? You can read all sorts of scholarly treatments of that, but nevertheless it was taken for something like a thousand years as a miracle, as a brief moment of unique divine grace given to the poet Virgil, making him dimly aware and prophetic of the coming of a redeemer. So his first work, The Eclogues, followed by a second work, rural in a different way, called The Georgics. Nothing to do with anybody named George, but instead with Geo-Earth. It is a four-book verse treatise on farming. 
you can see how grounded, no pun intended, Virgil was in the rural tradition and in the world of nature. And finally, the last work of his life, so, so late that in fact, on his deathbed, he had not yet quite finished it, the Aeneid. And the Aeneid was commissioned by the first Roman emperor, Caesar Augustus. Yes, the emperor who was on the throne and briefly mentioned in the New Testament for the birth of Christ. Augustus commissioned the epic from Virgil. Virgil was, once again, such a perfectionist that he tried to have the unfinished epic destroyed, even though by unfinished, it just meant not finished to Virgil's ideal of total perfect polish. If you read it in the original, you will find a couple of lines that are metrically short of a foot or two of verse. You will find a few repetitions that would probably have been eliminated in the final revision. But basically, the work is not really an unfinished work. But Virgil, perfectionist to the last, tried to have the work destroyed. And Caesar vetoed that. And that is the reason, according to the story, that we still have Virgil's Aeneid. So all of this stuff of cultural importance, we also need to talk a little bit about the history of Rome. And I promise, because I have spent half a lifetime teaching this poem to undergraduates, many of whom profess to hate history as dull and boring, I promise to restrict it only to that which is pretty much necessary to understanding the Aeneid and why the Aeneid is what it is, uh, just because of the references within the poem and not history for its own sake. Why the history of Rome when, of course, the Aeneid itself is cast all the way back centuries before that into the Trojan War period because Virgil lived during the period of time when the Roman Republic collapsed. It disintegrated and finally collapsed into a condition of anarchistic, violent chaos. Something comparable, perhaps, to living through the time of troubles in Northern Ireland in the 20th century. In fact, Virgil's family lost the family farm during some of the warfare of the Civil War that finally in erupted in uh, Italy. And this deeply marked Virgil personally and as a poet. When Augustus wanted Virgil to write a poem, the story goes that what he suggested, first of all, is I'd like you to write an epic about me, great ruler that I am and modest too. Virgil managed to persuade him to instead 
write a poem about the greatest of the ancestors of Augustus, again, according to legend, and that is Aeneas. But based on the legend of the losing side of the Trojan War, being the side that would found Rome, and bring law and order. Virgil saw what happens when law and order totally collapses, and it was not a pretty picture. It was dangerous, it was destructive, and so on. And when the ruling figure comes around promising law and order, because what Augustus established was in a 44-year reign a complete period of peace, which in fact lasted longer than that for a couple of centuries and became known as the Pax Romana, the Roman peace. So Augustus, in establishing the new Roman Empire, brought peace, brought law and order, brought a new chance for civilization. And this was deeply attractive to Virgil. Yes, the Aeneid these days has a bad reputation as propaganda for imperialism. But despite the post-colonialist backlash, which is both understandable and in its own way quite justifiable, there's more to the picture than this. Virgil is not some jingoistic, conquest-loving imperialist that is anything but what the Aeneid is about. Virgil, one part of Virgil, the poet, genuinely was drawn to the idea of an empire as establishing the kind of law and order necessary to civilization. If you lose it, you lose everything. And yet, as we will see at the same time, make no mistake, he saw the costs of the establishing of empire. He did not need post-colonial criticism to inform him that there were costs on both sides to the peoples who were subjected to the empire's rule, to the colonial people, to the Roman people themselves for that matter, but also to the conquerors, the enormous price of empire. Scholars occasionally speak of a tone in the Aeneid that is sometimes called the Virgilian sadness or melancholy, and it derives from some of that idea of the cost of civilization. It is a deeply emotional work, despite having a reputation for being not that at all. And I hope that we can bring that out as we go through it. The events of Virgil's own time are echoed in the events of the fall of Troy and the subsequent travels of Aeneas and his people. So let me just give you a few places ahead of time that will be relevant to when we talk about them. Oh, Virgil here has in mind the events of Roman history, especially in his own period of time. 
Rome began, like most states, with a series of kings in its very early history, but finally at a fairly early point revolted against them and threw them out and established a republic. That republic fought a series of wars between 264 and 146 before the Common Era, the first, second, and third Punic Wars were fought by Rome against its hereditary inveterate enemy, the city of Carthage in North Africa. Carthage had been a North African colony of the Phoenicians, people mentioned in the Bible, living in the Middle East with their famous cities, Tyre and Sidon. And Carthage, as their colony grew up to its own greatness, and ended up rivaling Rome and a series of wars. And when you study history, or at least when I studied history, the famous event from those wars was the event with the great Carthaginian general Hannibal, Hannibal crossing the Alps not only crossing the Alps to steal a march upon the Roman troops, but Hannibal had gone all the way to the east to India and brought back a secret weapon, elephants. Elephants had been used in war for centuries in India, and Hannibal figured that out and brought elephants back with him across the Alps. This is a story that tickled me even when I was very young. Can you imagine some poor Roman trooper marching along on some road in the Alps and comes around the bend, and if you have never even seen, never even heard of the concept of an elephant before, there is an elephant, and it would be like something out of a scene in Star Wars movies, some alien war weapon, some terrifying monster coming through the Alps. Didn't help because they lost eventually anyhow and Carthage was destroyed. The reason I bring all this up is that in the opening books of the Aeneid, Aeneas will land at Carthage back when it's still being built, when its queen was Dido. And Aeneas will have one of the most famous tragic love affairs of history with Dido. So that is relevant. The Roman readers would have known as these two fall in love that these people are, you might say, inveterate enemies in the future. Then, within Virgil's own lifetime, the slow collapse of the Republic, which just finally proved itself unable to govern, and finally the traditional apparatus of the Roman Senate and whatnot was put to the side because it was unable to govern, and the first triumvirate of three men agreed to rule Rome. Pompey, Crassus, and Julius Caesar. Julius Caesar 
was feared because of his popularity. Therefore, he was sent by the Roman Senate, which still existed, out to Europe to get him out of Rome because the people, the, the Senate feared that the people would make this great general ruler by popular acclaim. So they said, Caesar, go conquer Europe. So he did. He went from one end to the other, conquering as he went, and writing, by the way, as he went. His books, because they are written in a clear, simple prose, used to be a staple of first-year Latin. Conquered all the way, crossed the English Channel into Britain, and established Roman rule there, Roman roads that are still in use to this day, Roman aqueducts and other monuments, the great walls to keep out the barbarians like Hadrian's Wall. All of this established because of Caesar. And then he came back and he knew if he crossed a certain river, the Rubicon, that it would be the beginning of a civil war because he had enemies. And he crossed the Rubicon and gave a word to a phrase to the English language, crossing the Rubicon is when you make a fateful decision that there's no going back from. And sure enough, the Civil War was on. During that the uh, course of this, Caesar, Julius Caesar, had a sojourn in Egypt where he had an affair with the famous Cleopatra, ruler of Egypt, a, an affair, and it's part of my job as I see it here, to throw out the literary connections that are everywhere in this story that is made up of other stories. A delightful rendition of this love affair by George Bernard Shaw in his play Caesar and Cleopatra. And much of the humor in that play derives from the fact that at this point, Caesar was about 50 and Cleopatra was 16. Lots of delightful trouble in Shaw's play. However, Caesar went back to Rome, and as we all know, if only because of Shakespeare, was assassinated, which is, of course, dramatized in Shakespeare's play, Julius Caesar. And a second triumvirate sprang up to replace the situation. A man named Lepidus, Mark Antony, and a man named Octavian. Lepidus was soon eliminated, and it was a contest for the ruling of the world, often in science fiction and in superhero sagas, the contest to rule the world between, between two great men is a plot formula, but in this one case, it actually happened to be true. Mark Antony versus Octavian, and Mark Antony went down to Egypt, knew a good thing when he saw it, and repeated Caesar's history. Also had an affair with Cleopatra, except this time both the lovers were middle-aged. And this love affair was the subject of one of Shakespeare's great tragedies, far greater, I think, than Julius Caesar, Antony and Cleopatra. They lost, however, 
in a sea battle called the Battle of Actium in 31 BC. The Republic is dead, long live the empire. Octavian ascended the throne, became the first Roman emperor, named himself Caesar Augustus, August King, and ruled the Pax Romana, and commissioned Virgil. Next week, we'll embark upon the adventure of Book One of Virgil's Aeneid, A New Beginning, the saga continues.